intense suffering, in a time of intense trial. And it's written from the perspective of an individual, but notice in the title that he gives these instructions to the choir master. So it's written from an individual perspective, but it was to be set to music for the whole group of God's people to be able to sing this lament together. Now I have a feeling that if we were to sing songs like this today and it was attempted to be placed on contemporary Christian music stations, it probably wouldn't get the top 20 charts. Uh, It's probably not positive and uplifting enough. But this is a song written from an individual perspective set to music so that the whole congregation can come and lament to God together. And just like we are taught in the New Testament to sing songs to one another and to God that both teach and admonish us, this psalm does that. It teaches and admonishes the people of God uh, to, in moments of intense trial, to cry out in honest desperation to the one who can help them. And it is by this truth, by his truth, that our eyes are lifted up off of our times of despair and they're placed upon him, the all-powerful, covenant-keeping God. So then, when trials overwhelm, cry out to God, trust God. And we can see it clearly as we work through the details of this psalm. This psalm divides easily into three sections. The questions, the prayer, and then the trustful proclamation or the trustful declaration. That's how I want to focus, that's how I want to work through the psalm with you today. So let's look first at David's questions. The questions, David says in verse 1, How long, O Lord? That's his first question, how long? Until when? What point will this end? And this question is repeated four times in the first two verses. And immediately you get a sense of the, the frustration that is within David. The weariness that's in his voice. He is not coming to God in the midst of a season of of immense blessings and never wanting it to end. He's coming to God and wondering when this season of his life will end. How long will this continue? And notice then the question connected to the first question. Will you forget me forever? Notice the sense of abandonment that is in David's voice. God, it, 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 it seems as if you've neglected me. It seems as if you've forgotten me. I've been left here in this trial all alone. And his question to God is this, is it going to be like this forever? In Psalm 12, David had expressed grief over the fact that, that people had abandoned him. It seemed as if all people had abandoned him. But now, his grief is over the fact that it seems as if God has abandoned me, abandoned him. James Montgomery Boyce, I normally don't put quotes at least over a sentence long in sermons, but it was too good not to share. Uh, He asked the right question in light of this. He said, can anything be worse than that? It is hard to think so. When Jonah was trying to get away from God, he thought that being abandoned by God would be desirable. But when he was thrown into the sea, was swallowed by the great fish, and finally did sense himself to be abandoned by God, he found that he did not like the feeling at all. He compared his state of abandonment to Sheol or hell and cried out in distress, asking God to save him. End quote. And this is what David was feeling. 
David was feeling that he was truly all alone. God himself was not walking with David. God himself was not blessing David. God himself was not strengthening David. David is expressing a life that is marked by the very opposite of the blessed life. All the blessings seem to now be withheld, which is the meaning behind his next question. How long will you hide your face from me? God's face being upon someone or his gaze being fixed on someone was a sign of the blessing of God. And so you have in Numbers 6, 25, the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. But here David asks, how long will your face be hidden from me? The blessings of the Lord have seemingly been removed from David all the way around. And in verse 2, he continues his question, How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? Alone, David feels that he has, has to keep looking inwardly for direction. He has to keep looking inwardly for counsel. God has, is, it doesn't seem to be here. God seems to be hiding his face from me. And so if I need direction, if I need wisdom, if I need counsel, I've got to keep looking inwardly to myself. And his question is, how long will that be the case? And in his heart, David said, what I'm feeling at this moment is not happiness and, and joy and, and, and just great blessings, but I'm experiencing sorrow, grief, agony within. And he says, I'm like this all the day. And the wording seems to imply in the dawning of the day. So it carries the idea of this is the way I feel when I go to bed at night, it's the way I feel when I wake up in the morning, it's the way I feel every day, all day long. I'm constantly feeling alone. I'm constantly feeling as if your face is hidden from me. I'm constantly looking inwardly for counsel, and I am grieving inside. And I have nowhere to look. How long do I have to look inwardly to find out what to do? How long do I have to have this gnawing, painful agony eating me alive inside each and every day and along with all of that he says how long will my enemies be exalted over me David David was following the Lord yet his enemies prospered while he seemed to fail in the eyes of men his question is how long will this injustice seem to prevail I mean this is raw honesty with God this is expressing exactly what he is feeling, exactly what he is thinking, and exactly what he is experiencing in this moment. This is real pain being really expressed to the only real God in the midst of intense trials. And David is not rebuked for it. He isn't chastised for his honesty. He cries out with what he is feeling. And brothers and sisters, so should we. We should be honest with our God because you're either in these times right now that David is describing or they're coming. We are going to go through hard times and they come in many shapes and they come in many sizes. How long will I struggle in this family crisis? How long will I struggle with my career? Or maybe you remember times in your spiritual walk where you could easily chart your spiritual growth, but those days haven't been around lately. 
It seems as if lately you felt like the spiritual victories that used to come in rapid succession just, just aren't coming the way that they used to come. And you've, you've been so long without the apparent blessing of the Lord upon your spiritual walk that you've even begun to ask, how long, Lord, will I be in this time? Again, boys, and this is totally not my style, but let me quote him again, just because he preaches better than me. He says, the lack of blessing has continued for so long that you've become morbidly introspective. You have been dredging up past sins and have been wondering, is God punishing me for what I did then? I confessed the sin and believed he forgave me. But maybe he is bringing it up again and putting me on hold because of it. In extreme situations, you may even think, God has abandoned me forever. End quote. And if this is where you are, brother, if this is where you are, sister, there's nothing wrong with being honest with God. How long, Lord, will I be in this long, dark tunnel before the light will finally come at the end of it? In humility, like David here, in your intense trials, go to God honestly and bear your heart. Just open your heart before your God. Because your God is not only your king, he is your good father who loves to hear his children Cry out to them. Cry out to him. And we see David's questions, and I want us to secondly see David's prayer. The prayer. Because some may say, I'm not sure it's a good idea to be that honest before God. I mean, talking about feeling abandoned and stuff, it seems kind of like I'm complaining to God. It seems as if I'm murmuring before the Lord. And I say it's good to have that caution. It's good to have that desire to always show reverence to our God because it is easy for us to drift into complaining and to drift into murmuring. Our honest questions will become murmuring and they will become complaining if they stop with, God, this is where I am and I feel like it's because you're not here. I mean, if that's the prayer that we pray, God, this is where I am, it's an awful place and I feel it's, feel it's because you're not here, Amen. Now we might have a problem. But David's psalm didn't end after his tough questions of his honest cry before God. He drifted from there into petitioning, making requests of the Lord. When the Israelites were led out of Egypt and they began to complain to Moses that God has brought us out of Egypt just to bring us into the wilderness to die, it wasn't connected with the sense that this is just the way we're feeling at the moment. And it didn't lead into some kind of prayer for God to deliver them from that situation. And it didn't lead to a trustful declaration, God will trust you in whatever comes and whatever may happen to us. No, their complaining stopped with just that. This is where we are, and it's because you brought us here, and now we're going to die. That's complaining. What David is doing is what someone with faith does. He cries honestly to God, and then he begins to pray. Notice in verse 3. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. We've drifted now from questions to a prayer. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Three requests he offers to the Lord, essentially asking God to do everything that he has just questioned whether or not God was doing already. The first, he says, consider or look, behold. And the idea is David feels as if God has abandoned him. It feels as if God's face has been hidden from him. And so David's cry is, God, don't let your face be hidden from me. Look upon me. 
See me where I am. Consider my current status. Secondly, answer me. Reply to me. I have cried out with questions to you. I've cried out in desperation to you. And I'm praying now, God, that you would reply to me. Answer me. Respond to your child. And thirdly, light up my eyes. Which probably tells us that, that the predicament that David was in was threatening his physical life. Lest he sleep the sleep of death. They were pursuing him in order to kill him. And David is praying to God who is the only one that can save him. The only one that can provide life to him. Light up my eyes. It could also be a prayer for spiritual illumination. And if that's the case, it's similar to that James 1.5 prayer where God grant us wisdom in the midst of our trials. To see you and to understand your ways. But regardless, David is crying out, Lord, I'm soon to go under. Save me. Rescue me. David continues to pray in verse 4, Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. So if God were not to lighten his eyes, David is concerned that his enemies, God's enemies, will declare victory. That they have prevailed over David. And David sees this as injustice. And he cries out, Lord, don't let it be the case. Three requests. Consider, Lord. Answer me, Lord. And, and light up my eyes or save my life. And all the depths of all that we could learn from David's prayer in the midst of his intense suffering and trial. I mean, this is the turning point of the psalm for David. This, this is the cry of the desperate, broken heart that moves from merely voicing his experience to God to actually making requests of God. And we'll see in a moment that it is this that leads him to his trustful declaration in his God that will never fail. And the same movement, in some ways, needs to be true of you and I. If we want to claim, as we should, well, David asked tough questions of God. <clears throat> Therefore, we have the right, <clears throat> excuse me. Therefore, we have the right to ask tough questions of God. We then need to be consistent and say, David left those tough questions and then went to pray to God. That he would meet him where he was and he would minister to him in the midst of that intense suffering. If you've served God for any length of time, you know those seasons of life where it seems as if the trial is so heavy that it literally drives you to your knees. Where you don't know what to do except cry out to God. You don't know the right words to say. You don't know the right way to phrase what you're feeling inside. You just know, God, I'm broken. I am desperate. I am weighted down. My heart is in agony. And I'm crying out to you from this place, Oh Lord, please save me. Please set me free from this predicament that I'm in. We know what it is to cry, Lord, I've sought you for direction, but I've received none. I've asked you these questions, but I've heard no response. I've seen no direction. I, it feels like you aren't hearing me. But we must then move to actually pray. I think it's pretty common knowledge, and especially in a congregation like this, that the church, we could say, at least for several decades, failed to teach, especially new converts, sound theology and, and good sound doctrine. And so they were kind of placed on some 
wishy-washy foundations and said, good luck, and surprisingly, they failed. But I think one area in which the church is still flying under the radar and which we need to address is the fact that we fail so often to teach young converts how to pray. I mean, Jesus taught, he performed miracles, he walked on water, and yet when the disciples came to Jesus, they said, Lord, teach us to pray. And Jesus did. And I think one thing that we should note from this is that David did not, he knew how to pray. He knew that in his times of intense suffering, he didn't have to hide how he was feeling, he didn't have to hide what he was experiencing, and he didn't have to stop there. He went to God with actual requests, actual petitions, and said, God, please come and minister. That's the way it's been for Christians throughout the ages. I mean, you have guys like Spurgeon who God used mightily in his sermons to thousands come to faith in Christ. But it's amazing when people would go and sit in their service, so often the testimony was not how great the man preached, but how did you hear how he prayed? George Mueller was used by God mightily to show forth to the church that God still answers prayers. That was his number one reason for starting the orphanages in the way he did. I want to show the church who's seemingly forgotten this, God still hears us when we cry. Our hard times, our bad circumstances do not change who God is. Brother and sister, it might feel as if you've been abandoned. It might feel as if your prayer is bouncing off the ceiling. It might feel as if your prayer is falling upon deaf ears, but your God's eyes are upon you and His ears are open to your cry. There is never a moment when He doesn't hear you when you cry out to Him. He hears you. He sees you. He knows where you are. David was convinced, David prayed, and and he writes this psalm to help others pray and sing prayers to God as a gathered body of believers. He moved from his questions to praying, and so should we. Our how long will I go without your blessing? How long without your direction? How long will my previous prayers go, go unanswered? Must become, Lord, grant me your blessing. Lord, grant me direction. Lord, answer my prayers. In faith-driven request-making of God, our eyes are taken off ever so slightly off of our problems and they're placed upon Him instead. Because when all doors seem to be closed, that door stays open. We can go boldly to our God and He will grant grace and mercy in our time of need. The hymn writer writes, When all things seem against us to drive us to despair, we know one gate is open, one ear will hear our prayer. Our God's ears are always open to us when we cry. The questions, the prayer. Thirdly, the trust, or the trustful declaration, the trustful proclamation. Look at verse 5. We've gone from questions to requests, and now, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. David makes a declaration here. He's in despair. 
He is in agony every day. He has no clear direction forward from God. But in, in this despairing moment, his turning point comes as he cries out to God to move. He is in despair, but his trust, his reliance, his confidence is in God's steadfast love, David says. The, the hesed is the word. And the word itself means loyalty or faithfulness, and it's used oftentimes that way throughout the Old Testament, but when it's used to refer to God, it's often in reference to his covenant love or his covenant faithfulness to his people. So, for example, when Israel is, is freed from Egypt and they're not in one of their complaining moments, they begin to sing a praise to God, a thanksgiving to God for how he has set them free, and they use this phrase to describe it. Exodus 15, 13. He says, you have led... This is, this is the... Israel rejoicing in God, and they said, You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. In that moment, they recognized that they were delivered by the power of God because of the covenant-keeping love and faithfulness of God. The reason in which the power of God set them free was because God loved them and was faithful to His covenant. When trials overwhelm us, we cry out to God, we trust God. Why? Not because that's how the trials vanish. Not because that's the moment then that God will lift us from the trials and all of them will disappear. No, we cry out to God and we trust God because we believe that His love for His people is a never-failing love. That even in the midst of despair, in the midst of feeling abandoned, I know who God is and I trust Him. I believe His Word. This is one reason among many. If, if, you, want to know, if you want to know what will get me talking, uh, now I probably won't do it around Sean because he'll know it better than me. Well, both of these brothers will know it better than me. But covenant theology, that is, we could spend all day there. And that is not a discussion for ivory tower theologians to talk about. When you understand how God in his love has made a covenant from the very beginning and how it has unfolded through time, when you get that his covenant love is a never-failing love, it is a never-fading-away love, brother or sister, when you're in the midst of your trial, that's what will lift your eyes off your problems and place it upon God, who you know will come through for you. And that's exactly what David said. I have trusted in your steadfast love. My trust has been placed not in the fact that I know my trials are about to vanish. My trust is in the fact that I know you will remain faithful. Your love will never fail. This is what helps his overwhelmed, weary heart. It was as if in prayer he was reminded of the one to whom he was praying. David is reminded of who God is. And this takes his heart and directs his droopy eyes off the despair around him and onto the covenant-keeping God who is all-powerful and always faithful. And then it leads him, to look to, or leads him to make another declaration. Look back in verse 5. I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I know that my heart 
That same heart that he described as being in agony, that same heart that he described as being in sorrow, he says, I know my heart will rejoice in your salvation, will rejoice in your deliverance. Now here he's either making a a declaration of what he's going to do, when your deliverance comes, I'm going to rejoice. Or he's making a declaration, this is what I'm going to do now because I know your deliverance will come. I know your salvation has come because of who you are. You see the progression? How long will you abandon me? Went to, Lord, please don't abandon me. And then finally to, Lord, I know you'll always be with me. In the original, each of these stanzas were were one line shorter than the last. So the the questions was was five lines and the the prayer was four and the, the trustful declaration he makes was three lines. And one more quote. Dillage said that this song, as it were, casts up constantly lessening waves until it becomes still as the sea when smooth as a mirror, and the only motion discernible at last is that of the joyous ripple of calm repose. One of my favorite verses of one of my favorite hymns says, Though Satan should buffet, Though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ hath regarded my helpless estate and shed his own blood for my soul. The writer of that hymn, I'm sure most of us are familiar with his story, but the writer of that hymn was going through intense trials, overwhelming trials at that moment. But his heart will rejoice in the God of his salvation. Horatio Spafford was the writer. And and much like David in verse 6, he says, look at David in verse 6, I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. The past actions of God caused David to make a present declaration despite his present circumstances. I will sing to the Lord now because he has dealt bountifully with me. The word there conveys a sense of of completeness. The Lord has has blessed me in the fullest measure imaginable already. Therefore, I will sing to Him. It's a reflection of all that God has done for David up to this point that causes David. it's, It's a full acceptance of who God is and what God will do based on what He already has done that causes David to say, I will rejoice. I will sing. It's not a feeling that overwhelms him during corporate worship that moves him to say, I will rejoice. I will sing. It's not a deliverance from his problem, but an, an observance of his deliverer that causes him to say, I will rejoice. I will sing. Men like Spafford in his great trial wrote those words because he reflected upon Christ's finished work on his behalf personally and that is how every child of God sings and rejoices and continues to trust God even in the midst of crying out to him in pain and desperation it's because they reminded that God is the faithful covenant keeping love never failing all powerful God this is true throughout the New Testament we just read my absolute favorite chapter of the Bible, Romans 8. 
where Paul writes and says, for I consider, Romans 8.18, for I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Verse 28 of that says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. I, I preached that verse one time at the home church and uh, mentioned that whatever bad circumstances you go through in your life, if you leave church and have a flat tire on the way home, that is somehow, I don't know how, but it's working for your good. God is ordering it all to work for your good. And that very next morning, a lady had a flat tire before going to work. Uh, I claimed prophetic ability at that point and <laughs> trusted that God had, I'm just kidding. But it's true. Regardless of the circumstances, regardless of how meaningless the inconvenience seems, all things for those who love God, all things are working together for their good. And notice the verse 31 and verse 32 of Romans 8 says it like this, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Because verse 32, He who did not spare his own son, Christ hath regarded our helpless estate. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Are you suffering? Is it painful? Brother or sister, it can't be compared to the glory that's coming. I know that doesn't alleviate the pain. I know that doesn't bring you out of your suffering. I know you're still in the suffering. You're still experiencing the pain. But this morning, as we're gathered together as the body of believers, lift your eyes off the trial for a moment and remind yourself God is your deliverer. And over all these things, you are more than conquerors through him who loved you. How could Paul rejoice when he was in prison? Because re his rejoicing was not in his circumstances. His rejoicing was in the Lord. So when he wrote to the Philippians, he said, Rejoice when things are great and when all your bank accounts are full and when blessings are flowing in. And it seems like, it. no, he didn't say that. He said, Rejoice in the Lord. In the midst of suffering, in the midst of trial, your rejoicing remains because the Lord never changed. Your Lord is still your Lord. Therefore, rejoice in the Lord. Peter was the same way. When he wrote his epistle, he said, I know that, that in, in, in the first chapter, verse 6, he says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Verse 7 of that first chapter, he says, So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, Though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor of the revelation of Jesus Christ. Then verse 8, he said this. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. How can it be possible that people who are presently grieved by various trials can also presently rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Because their rejoicing is in the Lord. And their, their confidence, rather, being in the Lord causes them to realize that even their trials are precious. Now, as I know you probably often hear, I don't know everyone that's present. And so I cannot assume that all of us are Christians. 
And here's the reality. That all of this wonderful goodness and all of this trustful declarations that can be made can only be made by those who are truly believers. Because to the unbeliever, you don't have hope that your suffering is producing any good. You don't have hope that's good, that good is coming after the trial. It's not as if you can, as karma might say, pile up enough good and good's going to eventually find you somewhere later in life. No, for the unbeliever, you only have one thing to be sure of to come, and that is the fiery judgment of God. Because we, were his, we are his creatures. And he created us to display his glory and to live as he has prescribed. Yet every one of us have rebelled against him. We hated his laws. We hated his ways. We, we pushed off his hand. We didn't want his face upon us. We have run from him. And he is right to judge us for all eternity. But because he is merciful... He comes to save all of those who turn from their sins and place their trust in Jesus. Jesus who came and lived perfectly in, their pla in, in the place of believers. Jesus who came and died suffering the punishment that believers deserve. And Jesus who rose again from the third day. And so if you're an unbeliever here today, my urgent plea to you is don't wait another second. Right now, turn from your sins and trust in Jesus because he will save you. And there are a congregation full of people here that would love to answer your questions and talk more with you about the gospel. But for those of you who are believers, David was honest with his God. He cried out from where he really was. We can too. David made requests of his God in light of his situation. And because he's your father, because he loves you, he says, you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will the heavenly father give good things to them that ask? David trusted God because he's a, he is the covenant-keeping God who is always faithful and all-powerful. And as you look upon him, as the word reveals him, your perspective will change to having in view not the problem, but the problem-solver. The one who is able to help you. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of this earth, they'll begin to grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. The Psalms give us vocabulary for prayer and singing. And here they give us the, the vocabulary to go to God in the midst of our trials. When trials overwhelm, cry out to God. Trust God. He will not fail you. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, you are good. We are not. <clears throat> you see us where we are, even though we often question that. Continue to guide us. Continue to strengthen us, Lord. And those who are in those seasons of trials this morning, remind them who you are. Refresh them. <clears throat> comfort them and build them up. We pray this so that your name would be glorified, your name would be exalted and praised. We love you in Christ's name. Amen. Please stand together.